song, psalm, set to music. It was uh, a gift to us all. Let's pray. We have, uh, I've decided to take this psalm. It's, it's so heavy, it's going to take two weeks to lift it. It's weighty, dense, much here. I'll expand on that as we go into the sermon. But uh, we're going to take the first six verses. Now, your bulletin outline could be a little daunting to you. But you don't have to write any of that down now. It's there. And if you want to expand on anything, that's that's up to you. But I wanted you to try to get the full breadth of some of the breadth of this psalm as we go to it. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. You know, we need the Holy Spirit to do his work of working through our thought processes, changing our disposition, our outlook, our opinions, correcting us, reproving, rebuking, exhorting, with all long-suffering and doctrine. That's the job description of one who stands and teaches, preaches God's word. So we need the Spirit of God to work through his word for us. Let's do that now. Let's seek him. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit who does searches out our hearts. For the Son of God, Father, Jesus Christ, we thank you. Thank you for the Savior who, Lord, this triunity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our puny little brains just can't handle it. But we know what you've revealed and we love you for what you've said of yourself and who you are. We want to love you more. Show us how. Calm us. Settle us in, the, in, in this, the examination of this psalm. Settle us with renewed confidence, Lord, that you rule over all. And though the nations are indeed in an uproar, foolishness abounds. Defiance of you. Oh, Lord, you're greater than all these. We ask, Father, for those who are not well. Some have come and didn't feel well getting here and don't feel all that well now. We thank you for your mercies we sang of this morning. Mercies are wonderful. Some are not with us because of infirmities that linger in chronic illness. Pray grace for them. Joy abounding even in physical imitations, yes. And Lord, we're mindful of uh, the Vargas family. Thank you of them for them, Lord. And I pray for these, their children. I think what uh, Barnabas and Benjamin and Timeo. Uh, uh, Lord, encourage those uh, three young men today with uh, your the fact that you stand by for comfort, for help, for wisdom. Protect them, keep them physically well, joyful, and supportive to their parents. And pray that work of translation will go forward. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is, then we're sure, to see the Word of God, to be able to read it and to hear it, for the first time, thank you for what the Varguses are doing there in Papua New Guinea. Keep them faithful to that task. 
Now, Lord, we, oh, we must also ask for our nation. We are in harm's way. So much foolishness, so much error, so many lies, so much untruth, so much idolatry is thrown in our faces day after day. Now, steal us, Lord. Quicken our minds. Speak to us through this psalm. Thank you for it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This uh, might be hard for you to imagine, but try to. For many years, there was a little section in the front, the front page of the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. It represented an article there, and you would go into the paper to read it. And some of you may remember this, and the title of it is, Why Do the Heathen Rage? That was in there every weekend. <laughs> Why do the heathen rage? Can you imagine that showing up in the AJC these days? That's a story in itself. On July the 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was adopted. Revolutionary War gave birth to the United States of America. And it was in 1775, on April the 19th, the Minutemen and Redcoats clashed at Lexington and Concord. The beginning of a six-year war for American independence began. It didn't look well, I will tell you that. If you've read any history, you, just, you end up reading some stories of that time. You said, how did we win? <laughs> we did. In September of 1781, Washington's army of about 17,000 had surrounded Yorktown. It was in September. Cornwallis, without supplies and with no hope of escape, surrendered his 8,000 soldiers and sailors. On October the 19th, 1781, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara, acting for Cornwallis, gave his sword to Major General Benjamin Lincoln, while a British band played an old tune entitled, The World is Turned Upside Down. <laughs> How appropriate that was. Well, that could very well be another title to Psalm 2. The World is Turned Upside Down. And we will see in what sense is it turned, has it been turned upside down. Now, I must take some time to give you a little bit of background on the Psalms. We're going to be certainly these two Sundays in the Psalms, and we've been in the Psalms before. I made it one of my goals way, way back to get through all the Psalms expositionally, teaching exposition through the years. I made it for about, uh, I think there are a couple of psalms right down hanging in the end there somewhere, and I'm going to visit them, Lord willing, <laughs> but through all the psalms. And I need to tell you a few things about the psalms so that you'll appreciate this. It has its own, they have their own texture. It's a part, uh, a unique part of, of uh, the Bible story, the redemptive kingdom plan of God. You see, the Psalms are concerned with the establishment of God's kingdom. 
Now that kingdom had a, had a uh, for the time that it occurred, was a unique period of time in that it was the theocracy in Israel. But it was an advance from, as you follow on through from Adam to Abraham and his sons, I, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and David, and through the Old Testament, you can see the development of this kingdom plan of God culminating in the book of the Revelation. The theological theme of the Psalms could very well be the God who rules. In the Psalms, you can see man locked in mortal combat with the powers of evil. Every experience imaginable you can find in the Psalms. This is what we go to them. You know that. You're drawn there. You, there's a magnet in them. What is that magnetizing effect? What, what, how do you explain it? Uh, we'll say something to that in a bit. But here, these psalms are coming up out of the, a battlefield. Yes, varieties of psalms, praise, thanksgiving, confession, royal psalms, one of which we have here in Psalm 2, penitential psalms, imprecatory psalms, quite a variety. And the warriors are fighting for the warrior king, the Lord Jesus Christ. They reach for and grasp in the Psalms the exquisite perfections of God. And don't you love it when you're there? And don't the Psalms come to our rescue in so many ways? One way I know is that when you're mentally fatigued and you're trying to put, you're trying to put your thoughts together for prayer and you have a difficult time, you can take a psalm and just let that be your prayer. And so they serve us in that way, among other ways. Now, you need to remember also that the psalms reveal the outworking of the historical covenants of the redemptive kingdom plan of God. The Bible is not a scrapbook of unrelated stories through history. It is woven together by the Spirit of God, the editor and the editor-in-chief. And these great covenants, well, we could go back go to the Noahic covenant and tr track it on through to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And then we have uh, certainly that enters into this indirectly is the Mosaic covenant has a stands apart in a unique way. But then you go to the Davidic covenant and you have the new covenant. And what the Psalms do is that they show these covenants working out through history. And the core of covenant, the word covenant, speaks to relationship, relationship with God, intimate relationship. Now here, let's get a little closer to Psalm 2. Let's talk about the Psalms that deal with the messianic hope, the messianic hope. I've listed for you there in, you, in your notes the different kinds of messianic Psalms. Those who are what uh, would be called scholars who study the Psalms all the time, all, the, all their lives. Um, they differ in, in some ways on this, but this is what is consistent. That Jesus said that the Psalms spoke of him. Remember that walk on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, walking with those disciples? And he said, the Psalms say something about me. Oh, what do they say? One way is that they were done through, um, I, I can't get into all the different kinds of messianic psalms, but I can, this one I can uh, 
point to, there are some are indirectly messianic. That is, it takes nothing away from the fact that they look to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they look to that coming to, by speaking to David, through David, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where I land with this psalm. Some take exception to that and say there are psalms that are just purely prophetic, purely prophetic. I grant it, this may be one of them, but uh, I'm giving a bit, and I, when I was giving in on this, that I think that through David's experience, he speaks of Christ here. By the way, one of those uh, psalms that speak directly of Christ would be Psalm 110, Magnificent, in its portrayal. But you have these messianic psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Psalm 72. Some, they are called the royal psalms. And they are meant for all the sons of David, those who became the kings from David through David's seed. And only though, and here is the thing about them, they speak to the, psalms, to, to the kings, yes, but there is always some impoverishment in the, in the king. You can see there is an ideal view, idealized view of the coming kingdom. Is he ever going to come because the kings, even David, David left some things to be desired, but David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ did not. So the ultimate fulfillment of these Psalms would be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another one just popped to my mind, we've studied together before, and that's Psalm 22, glorious reflecting the person and work of Christ on the cross. So here it is. We have this psalm, which is going to speak, I think, speaks to David in his circumstances, but through him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to add this, that the language in these kinds of psalms, the, the, this kind of messianic psalm, is purposely embellished, embellished. You know that it's speaking much in a much wider sphere than just David himself. And that has to be factored in. Psalm 2 is much quoted in the New Testament. I hope to bring that out this week and next week. And one writer on the Psalms that I've appreciated through, year, through the years put it this way. It, that is this Psalm, is unsurpassed for its buoyant, fierce delight in God's dominion and his promise of his king. Now let's do a little something. If you have your Bibles in front of you, I hope that you're, you're there on this, looking at this psalm. I want you to do this. We're going to go and we're going to, for just a little bit of time, we're going to go to what I would say would be 30,000 30, feet. And we're going to look at the psalm and appreciate it in that sense. And I'm going to, uh, I'm having to uh, find my account of this psalm, and uh, if you will just excuse me for a moment and let me land on it. Um, here it is, Psalm 2. I want to call a couple, attention to a couple of things here. All right, notice, just notice now, we're at 30,000 feet over this, this entire psalm. You're going to notice that it begins with a question. It's a rhetorical question. It has to be answered. And that's in verses 1 to 3. It breaks off into four stanzas, this psalm. And the first one, you can title Human Rebellion. It's about how sinful man with his fist in God's face. Human Rebellion. 
And then the second stanza, you see it in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is the Father now comes into this scene. It's like J. Vern McGee in his Through the Bible said, I went to it and looked at it just to see how Dr. McGee handled this psalm. And he, he used the, the metaphor of a camera. You have a camera that looks over the whole world and then a camera that's positioned in heaven where the Father speaks. And then as we'll see after verses four to six, in verse seven, I will tell of the decree. But you have the Father's derisive laughter in verses four, five, and six. And then in verses seven to nine, the Son's declaration of the Father's decree. So the camera is on the Son. And then in verses 10 through 12, the Spirit of God gives instruction to these rebel kings, to fallen humanity. The camera focuses upon them. One other thing here, actually two more items, and then we'll go into these first six verses, is that there are those, and I read at length on this, I got caught up in so much, I may have read, well, I know I read more than I can possibly pass along, but there are those who are convinced that Psalms one and two were really one psalm to begin with. And there is a reason why these two psalms, or one long one, if you will, why they are placed, this psalm is placed at the beginning of the Psaltery. I know of one who describes Psalm 1 as God's uh, domestic policy. It's the king who speaks in this war against him. He speaks who is the king of kings and the warrior king himself. And so his domestic policy is seen there. And then in Psalm 2, it is his foreign policy. How does God handle all the nations of the world? Well, here, notice a couple of other things as well. You will notice that Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed. Psalm 2 ends with the word blessed, verse 12. That has been part of the argument to say this was really all one psalm at one time. Well, you needn't to be distracted by that, but understand that the Psalms are, on the one hand, very delicate things because, well, you know why I say that? Because they're poetry. What do you think of poetry? Do you, do you like poetry? Poetry is, uh, this is a little dangerous. I got, I got interested in some uh, poetry over this, uh, with regard to this Psalm. And I wanted to pass something along to you with regard to poetry in the scriptures. Poetry in Hebrew is, in the, uh, is not rhyme and rhythm like we are. And where you get into the uh, poetic language takes you into the feeling of a situation. Whereas prose is just straightforward. It just takes you there. I, this is a poor, maybe a poor analogy. Prose is like telling someone, someone how to get to the dance. Poetry is getting there and watching the dance. <laughs> Poetry just, it, it's intended to lay hold of the emotion with the thought. That's the best way emotion works, is when it responds to truth. And so the Psalms are written in poetry. Now there are different kinds of poetry. Can't labor this now, but it's a fascinating study. There is what is called synonymous parallelism. I'll just mention that one. There are, there are about six or seven different kinds. 
And that's where you have a statement in line A, and then you have a statement in line B which says the same thing, but in other words. Well, good Bible interpreters learn, well, if I can't quite figure out what that first line means, I just got a, I just got a clue because <laughs> it's restated. And that's the way you will find so many of the Psalms using that kind. It's called of poetry. It's called parallelism. Now let's look at this Psalm and let's walk through these first six verses. You will notice these, these four voices, and the very first one now deals with human rebellion. And what is it that we need to know about human rebellion? Well, I've got a question or two first. The question is, what is the answer to this question? Who, why are the nations raging? Don't they know that their plotting is in vain? It's empty? It's useless? You can't win the fight. It's not a fair fight. You puny rebel kings, you are no, you have no chance against God Almighty in the heavens. I think that word for uproar in the Hebrew word, it kind of sounds like you think it should be a word like this. It was ragosh, ragosh. It's the word that's used elsewhere of a stormy ocean and billowing waves, that kind of thing. And what is going on here is that the, the rage, the rage and the anger is found in those who are power hungry. The kings of this earth representing humanity, but the kings of this earth in their, in their rage, their hunger for power and an attempt to dethrone God. Why do you rage? Their plots are empty. They make great promises, these kings, through history. Oh, we're going to do wonders for you. They make them, and they always fail. They never come through. They come back in some other way, in some other form, in some other generation, but just as pitiful and as empty as they were when they were made before, and they can't fulfill them. It reminds us of our election cycles in the United States. I get all this chatter. All this um, intensity, political intensity. And I'm going to do, we're going to get America back. We're going to bring it to where it ought to be. That kind of rhetoric. Oh my, always stand at a distance from that kind of rhetoric. Just be careful, Christian, that you don't get swept away. But here you have these kings who, promises, who promise utopia. And what do they give? Dystopia. The Hunger Games. You get these stories that work their way out in history that end up killing millions and millions of people. Now there's another question. I'm coming back to that point. There's another question that comes up here. Who are these nations? Well, if you see that this psalm is by David, and it is really the Spirit of God directing it to David, through David, to the Son of God, you have to accept the fact that David is speaking of those nations surrounding Israel which sought to overthrow him and his kingdom. You go to 2 Samuel in chapter 5, you'll see an example of this. As soon as David was recognized as the king over Israel and Judah, and all Israel acknowledged that, and guess who found, finds out? The Philistines. And so they're going to come against David and seek immediately to bring him and his fledging kingdom down. And he goes to God. Oh, what a, what a story there in 2 Samuel 5. And David 
David goes to God, Lord, what do I do? And God says, go get them. <laughs> go after the Philistines. And he does, and he defeats them. And the story goes on from there. But that gives you one example. But who are these kingdoms? These are the kingdoms who historically have sought to overthrow God's kingdom on earth. They're essentially antichrist in nature. These nations create their own gods and worship them. They ultimately resist the claims of the gospel. There was no respect for the temple, for the tabernacle and the temple and that gospel message bound up in them. And they, these nations, they culminate in the killing of Christ on the cross. We'll see that as it's brought out in no uncertain terms for this passage is quoted in Acts chapter 4. We're coming to that. So they're seeking to destroy God's covenant people, Israel. That's what they're after. And that's their rage. And the rage, how does it come about? That circumstance of the cross of Christ in his trials tells us a lot. Because you have the political, the pagan, the, the, the political pagan world, and the religious world who came after Christ with a vengeance. Tells you how these successive uh, nations work in their rage against God. And what they thought, here's what the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin sought to play this card. If we can just get Pilate to see that this Jesus is really a threat to the stability of Rome, they'll take care of him, they'll take him out. And what they, because they knew that the Romans would, did not want to hear anything that would be, deal with anything, be an obstacle to their power and control. So there is the way it showed itself, politically. And then to the, to the Jewish leaders, to the Sanhedrin, or the unbelieving part of the Sanhedrin, Jesus was an imposter. He wasn't the Messiah. He was, uh, their Bible said something else about the Messiah, but this sure, this is not the one that we look for. That's the way they came against him. And so the world hates Jesus Christ. Didn't he tell his disciples that the night before his trial? He says, it hates me, it's gonna hate you. That's the war, that's the battle. Now let's look at these first three verses for a moment. Let's unpack them. I want you to notice, first of all, the way I would like to caption this section is that the vaunted arrogance of the nations is doomed to failure. They will not be able to pull it off, have not and will not. It's the voice of the nations is one of defiance against God and his anointed. And this fury, it's vented by the leaders, the peoples of this world, against God and his rule. The nations, though, haven't got a chance. It's not a fair fight. In their deception, they rise up in anger against God. And this is nothing more than a childish temper tantrum. That's what it looks like. It's an emotional reaction to God's rule. I mean, I'm nudging up to something. If you want to try to understand what's going on in our present day, in the, in the Western nations, listen carefully. But this, but how foolish is this rebellion? Consider that all the good things that God has done for the peoples of this world, by way of common grace, Paul preached this way. If you look in Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17, when Paul's preaching to pagan people, you know what he tells them? I mean, he's teeing the ball up to get the gospel to him. He says, look what all God's done for you. He sends the rain. He gives the crops. He replenishes the soil. He's blessed you. You have a lot of good things that come from God. 
You would think that might cut some ice, but it didn't. Oh, but the kindness of God, it's to lead to repentance. That's the purpose of it, seeing his goodness. But you can see this played out in the trial. I mentioned it in Acts 4 and 25 through 28. That is such a pertinent passage. I like to read that. You can turn there or you can just listen to it. Because this is where, very instructive on this psalm, because this psalm shows up there, that the, the disciples were told by the religious authorities, you are to stop preaching the gospel. No more. Shut up. You can't do this. Stop it. What did the disciples do? Do they take, do they go to their people, to the church, to believers, and do they ask that this opposition will be removed? No. You know what they ask for? Give us courage, Lord. We want boldness. And so, for we cannot, I'm reading from the text of, of uh, Acts 4 and verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. All right, that sets the stage. Now get ready. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, now that's why we know David wrote Psalm 2, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Go get them! <laughs> Preach the gospel. Don't flinch and back off. But you see how <coughs> quickly this psalm came up to the mind of Peter. Right immediately, because they saw it. Now, this does not exhaust the significance and the meaning of Psalm 2 because it's going to be quoted a little bit later, and we're going to see this next week because the resurrection is in the psalm, and this psalm also anticipates the book of the Revelation and the coming again of the King of Kings. Oh, I told you, a lot of heavy lifting here. So, it's the desire of these rebels, thinking back now to what the disciples, what the early church faced. It's the desire of these rebels to pursue self instituted goals and he uses some interesting language here if you will n notice the, the way it, it unfolds he describes the language here and I'll read it to you the kings of the earth are set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against anointing saying we will let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords what he's using here is a word picture of an ox or two oxen that are yoked together to pull the plow. Well, what the picture is, is that the yoke that is broken and sought, they sought to get themselves free of, to find freedom, to find freedom. That's the moral law of God. We could say certainly the Ten Commandments. 
the moral law of God is what they wish to overthrow, rid themselves of it so they can have true freedom. That's where they're headed. So God's moral laws are just seen too restrictive. We don't like them. Yes, at the core of it, it was rejection of the gospel. It's rejection of the Christian message. It's a rejection of a Christian world and life view. If you want to see the symptoms of it and how it's playing out in our day, here's how it goes. This shouldn't catch you by surprise. We're going to, def- we're going to redefine male and female. Huh? We have a generation of young people now who are being told that you can't trust what is obvious biologically. They're male and female. Duh! And that is being questioned and given sanction by the media and other places. Redefining marriage. Who would have thought it? Redefining marriage, man and a woman. God brought Eve to Adam and you know the story. Why would redefine it? Let's throw off their cords. Let's break the bonds asunder. They are fettering us, limiting it. We want freedom, freedom to be ourselves, find our own identity. Oh, there's so much more out there. We've got to go get it. Using abortion, the killing of babies as a means of birth control. Declaring gender-affirming care as medically moral. Have you followed this in the news? It can be depressing. Don't go there if you're easily put down and made to feel very discouraged easily. And that here, now we have the AMA now sanctioning this so-called gender-affirming care, which I won't go into the details here. It's an ugly picture. And what is promoted in in the academic institutions, the media, teaching, indoctrinating, the liberation of the oppressed by, and I quote here from a fascinating article by some, I'll give the name to you afterward if you'd like to have it, the way of intersectional solidarity, the support of the oppressed in their victimhood brought about by supposed sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, and other alleged American sins, past and present. There is a Talk about a conspiracy, it's not, <laughs> it's easily seen. This is what's happened to every institution, every institution. And it shouldn't, Christians shouldn't have their head in the sand on this sort of thing, it's what's happening. Decriminalizing the legal code. There is this, I can't chase this one, it's a side item that's happening in a county right near here where you can see there's just an entirely different approach to criminals defunding the police failing to apply just and compassionate norms to the homeless population, destroying meritocracy, that is in the parables of Jesus where God has distributed in his sovereignty the gifts and opportunities that we have and we're to measure up to those and take those opportunities and do the best. As, As believers, we understand this concept. What God has given to us in time and talent an opportunity is use it for his glory. But that's, no, we want everybody to turn out equal. No, 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 no. The equality is in sinfulness and the need for a savior. So here are the cords of the moral law. Let's not see them. You know what those cords really are? This, uh, Hosea 11 and verse four speaks to this. You know what these cords are? The moral laws of God, they're love cords. It's a love bond. God says, don't do this. Don't do that. Why? That's love. You go there. You want to redefine marriage. You want to get people confused about what male and female is and create another category called transgender. That's cruel to those who get this, who are confused. 
with regard to gender. That's not the, it's not that, we're not haters. We love, God loves, don't go there. It'll ruin you. You'll be, you'll go to the edge, suicide, depression. You'll regret it, don't do it. So there is where it goes. I hope you can see that. Let's go further with it. So, just a final thought with regard to verse, verse one. You can see this played out in man's moral history. Romans 1, 21 through 32. Man the sinner wants to be free. So what does he do? He worships the creation rather than the creator. As in Luke 19, 14, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now then, also with verse 2, I want to expand on that just a little further. The leaders and the people, the people in this world devise ways to overthrow God's rule and God's ruler. God's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Davidic king, infuriates the kings of this world. They hate Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. The nations surrounding Israel sought to destroy her. They waged unrelenting warfare against God's covenant people. You know, <clears throat> keep this in mind when you read through the Old Testament and see these nations. There were actually three categories of nations in the ways they sought to knock the legs right out from under Israel and destroy them. And Satan was behind it. We know that from the book of the Revelation. Satan sought to do everything he could to keep the Messiah from coming. And he sought to destroy. And the remnant in Israel, the godly remnant, got very small. But here's these nations. Assyria, Babylon, and Syria. Those were oppressor nations. They carried some heavy weight. They were the well-muscled nations who could just come in and walk all over Israel which they did as God used them as instruments of discipline. And then there were those nations, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Philistia. Those were the troublemakers. I hesitate to call them mosquitoes because uh, you read the story in the Old Testament of these nations and how that when Israel disobeyed God, God, what did he do in his disciplinary action? He said, okay, I'm going to turn you over to these troublesome neighbors around you. And if you, you, you're attracted to their gods, I'm going to let you see what it's like to live under the regime of their gods, as he did with Assyria and Babylon. And then there are the seducing nations, Phoenicia and Egypt. Oh, Israel could not resist Egypt, could she? Hey, well, oh, it, we can go down there and they've got power. They're a little further away from Babylon and Assyria, the big nations. We can get out of the neighborhood or get somebody to come and help us in the neighborhood. Didn't work out too well, did it? Not at all. Herod, Pilate, and the Romans conspired together. So here is what the nations desire to do. They want autonomous rule. They do not want God ruling over them. And in these first three verses, I like the way Charles Spurgeon, Haddon Spurgeon said it. We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. And to hate God is to hate Christ. To hate Christ is to hate God. It's impossible to submit to God without submitting oneself to the Messiah. And folks, I don't want to linger on this. I want to get us into verses 4 to 6, but I want to tell you. I hope that what this psalm should, and if I handle it right and, and, and honor the, the flow, the disposition, and the encouragement for which it is designed, if you're dismayed, take heart. Take heart. All right, let me hold that and get that when we get down through the end of verse six. Don't be dismayed by what's going on. You see, our civilization is falling apart. It's crumbling. There are evildoers who are working 
to bring it down. All right, let's look at verses 4 to 6 to summarize this. God has chosen the, to exalt his son over the nations. Aha, the sun comes up, metaphorically speaking and literally speaking. The father speaks in derision of the puny attempts of human rebels. This is the only occasion in the Bible where it says God laughs. Now caution here. This is not a comedy that God is seeing played out and he's saying, wow, my creatures are really giving me a good show. Ha, ha, ha. No, 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 no. This is not a Saturday Night Live thing. This laughter is one of displeasure, it's derision, it's contempt to see what they're doing. And God has confounded the wise by the wisdom of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. God looks upon these efforts to set aside his moral law and keep this in mind, that what's going to happen in our nation if we tend to continue to throw ourselves head over heels after the, in the defiance of God's moral law, redefining marriage and all the above and all this that's going on, that if we continue, it's going to create greater havoc. If you think what you see in some cities like San Francisco, like New York City, and uh, the, these larger cities, if you see, and, and it can begin to happen in, in Atlanta, you see these cities begin to fall apart. Chicago, it will come to the entire nation. That's what's coming if God in his grace and mercy does not step in and make some changes. And it won't happen just by politics, folks. So be careful. It's going to take some work of God that will astound us and where churches and Christians are going to have to stand strong and know how in wisdom and love to push back. All right, well, let's go further. So God has triumphed over the arrogant. But what makes God laugh? That man thinks he can defy God and get away with it. There's a little commentary on the Psalms. He's written a lot of little commentaries, and I will mention his name, and they can be helpful. Some of those who think, well, these are not really all that scholarly, but they're written by a man, a pastor. I met him. I knew him. He's with the Lord now. But he was a faithful servant, and uh, he, he, the Lord blessed his ministry, and that's Warren Wearsby. And he has a series of little commentaries. They're, they're very helpful paperbacks. This is what he said with regard to this. His laws are still in force and his judgments are certain. God is speaking today in nature, in his word. Now you can't defy nature. That's, that's what he's saying. You know, look, does biology say something? Yeah. And God speaks in his word and in the human conscience, yet man will not listen. God is speaking today in grace, but one day he will begin to speak in judgment. He simply laughs at these little moral imbeciles who dare to shake their fist in his face. It's a laughter of derision. And he is not tolerant of any disloyalty to him. That comes out loud and clear in verse 5. And one day God is going to speak in his wrath. It's the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, the judgment of the nations. There will be a great tribulation. Look at Matthew 24 and 21. There should be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And speaking of his wrath, it's already being poured out, though it's going to come in greater measure. 
Romans 1.18 says this, for the wrath of God has been manifest on all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That the, you push back against God, and what does God say that he does with sinful humanity? He turns depraved minds over to a banquet of consequences. You want this? You're going to get the consequences to it. And the worst is yet to come. And the, the, one of the sorrows of this is that it impacts us as God's people. But we can't let it sweep us away. Not at all. So by allowing man to have his own way and suffer the consequences, that's how it will come. So God's answer to human rebellion and arrogance is the installation of his son as the anointed king. You see that language there? Let's look at that a little more closely. Look as to what he says with regard to the coming one. It's the Lord says, and that's the word, Hebrew word, Yahweh. You'll see it, it's all caps in your translation. Capital L-O-R-D. That's the covenant God of Israel. Yahweh says his anointed. And from that word is the Hebrew, the word Hamashiach. And this is the word from which the Christ or the anointed one, Christ the Messiah, comes. And he has installed himself. And where does he install himself? You look at the text. On Zion. And this is where the rebellion really it was epitomized, wasn't it? For it was on Mount Zion, it was at the cross in the trials of Jesus and his crucifixion. Now, let me just say a word about that reference to Zion. The geography there is quite instructive. Is that Mount Zion was, there was uh, above a hill. If you look at the land, at the city of Jerusalem, there is what is known as the city of David. And it sits down on one of the lower recesses of what is a larger hill. And you go up to the top and you move up beyond the old city of David and you're on Mount Zion. We had classes there and stayed there and studied there when we went to Israel on Zion. And what he's going to do is install his son on Mount Zion on Israel. Now this is not just a theological geography, folks. I have some dear friends who are all millennialists and I love them and I don't want to be mean to them. But I read one of their study Bibles where they refer to, it's in Zechariah 14, they refer to the uh, geographical, it's called theological geography is the way they do it. In other words, hey, it's not the geography, it's just that the Lord exalts himself and it will, it will occur in heaven and it's not on Zion, it's not Jerusalem. But it's Jerusalem, it's on Zion. And that, and, and Zechariah 14, let me finish this thought, and I want to say something about Zechariah 14 with this. That what happens at this point, until the human race, until then the human race will continue to create ever greater, greater messes in the name of progress. That's what's going to happen. But he's going to install his king on Zion. It's coming. And he's given a preview of that as we're going to see next week in the, the day that his son was begotten. What's that mean? Not what the Jehovah's Witnesses wanted to mean. <laughs> no. But have you, you heard this word progress lately? We've even got a movement now called progressives. I don't know about you, but when I have a hard time even saying that word to describe some self-appointed, those who have appointed it to themselves. It's, not, it's regressive. It's regression. It's not progressive. And so, but it's not confined to one political party, not at all. I would remind you that uh, there is a danger in getting oneself too deeply enmeshed in political parties and looking therein for the kind of relief and hope that one hopes to find. But it can be found there. 
It can't be found in any political parties. And you can see some really dismal situations existing right now. And what politicians are saying, and they're looking at the, they're looking at polls and looking at, you know, these uh, who's, who, how many think this, how many think that. But oh, God has set his son up. This is where we come to the gospel and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in preaching, proclaiming the gospel and living the life of stalwart confidence to him in our personal lives and resisting those who want to back away from what God has said in his word to undermine and those who want to undermine his authority. That, and I'd like to think of how Zechariah speaks of this. In Zechariah 14, is a fascinating chapter in the Bible. I can tell you what's there. I don't want to distract you by just getting into the breakdown of it. But it describes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his feet touched down on the Mount of Olives. That mount is about 200 feet above the city, about Zion, above Jerusalem. It's actually, a, if you were going to get a 50-yard line seat and where you could look down on the playing field, Mount of Olives would be a good place. His feet will come down to that place. And then the mountain is going to split east and west. And it further goes on to say that the Lord is going to establish a plain and where Jerusalem is going to be, its borders are going to be uh, 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 stretched. And, pro and there's where the temple the, the, will come. The, the millennial temple will be on that place. Three times, though, he mentions Jerusalem in Zechariah 14. It's in verses 1 through 9. And what he's going to do and come and rule and the Messiah will come and rule and reign where? There in Jerusalem, in the kingdom. So we can't just put that up in heaven. Yes, he is ruling there. He's at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming to this earth. That's, that is the prospect. That's the hope. Now, all that to say this. What do we do as Christians with regard to these promises, this hope? This is why this chapter is this way. And we've got verses uh, 7 through 12 to look at next week. But what he's doing in this psalm, by speak the Holy Spirit speaking to David, through David, looking to the coming of the Christ, and when he will be installed as the king, not these petty, puny kings who want to raise themselves up with their own grand schemes in utopia and progressive uh, looking at human history as progress, being fed by the... By the theory of evolution, that we're all going to getting better, and so on, and so on. But I just remind you of history, what God has done. What did he do with Stalin, who was responsible for the slaughter of millions of people? What did he do with Hitler, who was responsible for the slaughter of millions? Xi Jinping, China, what is he, try what is he trying to do? Just a small, little, puny world leader with his fist in the face of God. These earthly leaders, God has shown and will show what he will do. So Christian, take heart, take heart. You know what I find fascinating? I close with this thought. I find fascinating how we're so fascinated by the Titanic. Um, that uh, it just can't, you know, the movie came out and really blew things wide open for our interest in 1997. 111 years ago, the Titanic went down with thousands of people aboard. The, uh, golden, the upper class, top deck, and then the middle deck and lower deck, and so many were lost in those freezing cold waters in the North Atlantic, hundreds of miles off the shore of Newfoundland, and went down to the bottom two miles down. And then the sad story of Ocean Gate and that little mini submarine just imploding.
But what is it about the Titanic? Oh, so many books have been written, more than one movie. We're drawn to that. And you, if you've seen it, you have this experience, don't you? You wonder what you would have done. And what you find in the story of the Titanic is that people died as they were. The kind of person he or she was, they died that way. Those who were brave and self-sacrificing died. Those who were frivolous and foolish died that way. But there's something bigger at play here. And that is the Titanic turns out to be a parable. Because we know we're headed for catastrophe. We are all, in a, in a sense, on the Titanic. It's a matter of time. Jesus Christ is coming again. Now I will give you this prospect, and I have this on the authority of Scripture. There are lifeboats for those who are God's people. Find the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be safe. You will be safe. Even though things will collapse around us, things will get worse. We have our hopes settled in Jesus Christ. And we should therefore be buoyant and hopeful and sacrificing, looking out for others, giving out the gospel, not being ashamed of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and not being ashamed of his moral law, whatever it may cost in the workplace, at school, or wherever. But we stand for Christ, for his glory, in his name. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord and our God, we give you thanks that you have revealed such wonderful things. Wonderful things here in your word. And our Lord, we give you thanks that there is the hope of your coming again. Oh, what a prospect, Lord. What a hope. You will come, and you will set and make all things right. And we look forward to that kingdom that will come. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is not a kingdom citizen, who has not put his or her faith in Jesus Christ, so that when that final catastrophe does come and your wrath breaks out, either in death and eternity, which would be too late, or still living and your wrath breaks out on this planet while we would still be alive, perhaps, Oh, Lord, thank you that your wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ so that we would not have to experience your wrath and it's satisfied in him. Thank you, Father, for, for the propitiatory work of the Savior, redeeming us and reconciling us. If there's one here who does not know Jesus Christ, oh, I pray that he or she will fall on their knees before this day and call out to you for your salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.